Hi, this is Dan Mendes from NextGen Venture Partners, coming off of a great conversation with Michael Horn. Uh, Michael is a venture partner with NextGen and one of the leading thinkers, uh, investors, and advisors on the future of learning. Uh, Michael uh, was the co-author with uh, Clayton Christensen of a book called Disrupting Class. Uh, Professor Christensen at Harvard Business School uh, created the, the term <laughs> disruption that is now spread throughout the business world. Michael ran uh, Clay Christensen's think tank for many years um, and is now uh, working with accelerators and a number of companies, and he continues to write and to lecture. Uh, and uh, he is one of the most thoughtful people I've ever encountered uh, when it comes to what's next for learning. How should schools look? How do people uh, consume information uh, the best? Um, what kind of education system uh, should we have in the future? Those are the subjects that uh, we get into in this conversation, as well as uh, some startups that are interesting in that space. So without further ado, here's Michael. Michael Horn, uh, one of the world's leading experts in online learning and in innovation uh, in education. Why do you dedicate all your time to this world? You know, ultimately, my mission has become to transform an outdated education system uh, built in the industrial era into one fit for the knowledge economy of our time that allows every single student and child uh, to find their passion, build it, and uh, fulfill their potential. And right now, the system literally was architected to sort students out and do the opposite of that. And so it's my mission to transform that every single day I wake up. You say the system is doing the opposite of that. Why is it so backwards? Yeah, I think most people don't realize the origins of the education system, that it was literally patterned after the factories that were emergent at the time when the formal education system in this country and others uh, were built. And it, and it was designed after a factory in the sense of we would take uh, people, uh, batch them up based on their date of manufacture, put them in what we called grades and classrooms and deliver content to them in the same way at the same pace. And then we would ship them out the other side and some students would, you know, have really gotten it, so to speak, and other students wouldn't. And, and those gaps over time for some of those students would accumulate such that they would effectively get sorted out as rejects, if you will. Uh, and, and assessments really were done as autopsies to sort of figure out who to filter out of the system. And, and that was the intention behind it. Uh, it wasn't, it's, it's not a teaching and learning system. It's, a, it's basically a mass uh, sort of broadcast instruction system. And, and, and even if you go back to Thomas Jefferson and read his writings uh, for what he thought the ideal education system would be, his contention was that you would have a, basically a primary school system that would give students uh, the basics to be citizens in the democracy. Uh, some subset of those would, would, would go on uh, for, for slightly higher education and uh, sort of be the managers of, of, of the economy, if you will. Uh, and then a subset of those people, very small number, uh, elite, would go on to university where they would get schooled uh, in ways uh, to be uh, uh, wise leaders, if you will, of the republic. Um, and, and effectively, that's the system we design. And so a lot of times when we look at, say, 30% uh, dropout rates now, 20% of, out, out of high school in this system, uh, you know, 55% graduating from four-year colleges uh, in, in the country. And we decry those results properly so, I think, for this day and age. Uh, but we, we fail to acknowledge the fact that the system was actually built to do just what it's doing. And, and those outcomes are actually a sign of a system working. It's just out of date with where the economy is today. What should the system look like? I think the system should be able to realize uh, the fact that 
we all have different learning needs at different times. And if you as an individual, it's, it's sort of intuitive that you don't learn at the same pace as, as one of your friends, you have different interests, uh, you have all bring in different levels of background knowledge into an experience, which means an analogy for you maybe helps uh, organize the world and make it make perfect sense for, for, for your friend. Uh, it just confuses them and, and helps them develop confusion about a topic. And as a result of all these differences, if we're really trying to optimize every student's learning path, we need to have a system that can customize for those differences. And, and so that's that's essentially our, our contention is that uh, we should have an education system that is able to personalize for those differences and in which you move on not based on the calendar uh, or, or the time of year, but you move on when you've made true mastery over learning objectives and sets of competencies. Uh, and, and mastery should be the what propels you forward. And our sense is that in the past, you could do that if you had an individual tutor, but that's prohibitively expensive for most people. But now we can use technology uh, to effectively give every student access to it, a tutor at a price that we can afford. Uh, and so the, the thoughtful use of online learning uh, in brick and mortar environments in K-12, virtually in some cases, uh, uh, in a mix of ways and, and increasingly mobile learning, gives us the potential to start to transform the system in that way. When you talk about technology, uh, you often uh, end up talking about startups. Uh, and you are involved yes. with a lot of startups, both as an advisor and an investor. Uh, give us a couple of examples of some of the uh, startups that you're most excited about. Yeah, so one startup that I'm really excited about is called Smartly, uh, or, or the product is called Smartly. The company is uh, um, uh, Pedago after pedagogy. But um, Smartly is, is a mobile learning uh, app, in effect, that is the most efficient way I've ever seen uh, to consume and, and understand con uh, content very quickly with an active learning pedagogy, um, where, where effectively you're answering a question every every seven, eight seconds, something like that, um, uh, and, and therefore make, making meaning and, and truly engaged, because learning is ultimately an active process uh, that is far different from a lot of the broadcast uh, learning apps that are out there. So, so really excited about uh, a company like that that's taking what we know from learning science and, and putting it into action. Uh, that, I, so that's one end of the, uh, of the spectrum, I guess you'd say. Uh, number of companies I could talk about. Um, really excited about a company that's very early stage, but called Emotuit, uh, effectively takes all the data uh, from your facial re uh, uh, expressions during an online learning experience, uh, your click rate, things of that, to measure your engagement uh, with content and to give feedback to providers. Uh, to help uh, make content more engaging or to be able to personalize for, for someone when they start to check off uh, and, and, and they need a different experience. Um, I'll give you one other example, uh, as long as we're at it. Um, uh, board member at a company called uh, Noodle Partners, uh, which uh, I, I think is effectively beginning the early stages of disrupting the online program manager space. So OPMs uh, popped up a uh, decade couple decades ago to basically help traditional colleges and universities start to take programs online. Um, and they did so in a way that would capture uh, 60%, anywhere 50 to 70% of revenue uh, from a student. Um, and so very lucrative business for the OPMs. Uh, over time, not a great business for the universities as online has become a more and more trusted 
uh, modality into which uh, students learn. Uh, and, and Noodle Partners basically says, look, when the OPM market started, OPMs had to do everything. They had to do uh, the brand marketing. They had to help with instructional design, bringing in students, enrolling them, basically running the program. Um, and there was a lot of risk because no one knew if online learning was 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 a medium that made sense and brand risk and so forth. And so um, having a, a revenue share like that made sense. But increasingly in the market, there's lots of technologies and individual companies that do different aspects of what it takes to uh, produce an online program uh, very, very well. And so you can start to modularize or unbundle that world. And so Noodle basically serves as the uh, integrator of, of third-party services uh, to give the university far more control over their online program and, and to customize it uh, far better and at, a, and at a far lower cost, um, uh, about half uh, all in, including all the providers of what a traditional OPM would take. Um, and so think it's a very disruptive value proposition that's going to put a lot more control in the hands of universities and take advantage of an online learning market uh, that's growing extremely rapidly still. I, I think most people don't probably realize that 30% of master's degrees are now earned online, uh, growing roughly 12% a year. So so excited to to take some cost out of the system. So that that's a stunning number on the master's degrees. I'm curious where that stands uh, on K-12, where that stands on uh, sort of uh, bachelor's degrees, um, and uh, and whether there are any companies that you see that are ex uh, working to bend that curve in the right direction. Yeah, so um, in, in K-12, it's tricky because there's no good data out there. Um, and in, in the book I wrote with Clay Christensen, Disrupting Class, we made the prediction that by 2019, 50% of all high school courses would be delivered online in some form or fashion. Uh, the vast majority of which we believed would be in blended learning settings, that, that is online learning in the schools, um, in the brick and mortar schools, I should say. Uh, and since that prediction, we made it. Um, the last data point is like 2005 or 2007, and no one has been collecting good data since then. So anecdotally, I can tell you that at least, uh, and this is me summing up numbers from the providers that I know, uh, at least 10 million, if uh, I, very conservative number of students in the K-12 system uh, are learning, at least in part through blended learning at some point in their day. Um, how much they're doing, I don't really have a good sense. And I think it's a very conservative number because we know a lot of teachers are flipping their classrooms and using a lot of free online resources uh, from Khan Academy, things on YouTube, EDU, and so forth. And we just have no sense of how deep that is, to be honest with you. Um, so my sense is, you know, we're, we're a couple years away from 2019. I, I think roughly it feels like, you know, that trajectory in high school at least is, is, is going that way. But, but I really have no feel for it uh, in, in a rigorous way, to be totally, to, totally frank. In the broader college world, which is the other question you asked about undergraduate, uh, we know that um, it, it, at least 25% of students as of a couple of years ago in, in the formal accredited higher ed space, we're taking at least one online course. Um, and so, and, and that data is, a, a, I think, a, a year or two old at this point, prob uh, probably a couple years old. So it, there's a lot of penetration. I would say it's, it's, it's the case that a lot of undergrads still want the brick and mortar, quote unquote, college experience. Some of our research has shown that a lot of students, despite knowing that they should be going to college to, you know, in part to get a job, 
having that classic quote unquote American idealized college experience is still a major motivator for at least a, a, a specific segment of the population. If you were to work full time at one startup at one company, uh, what would it, what would it be? And, and you can pick uh, an existing company or design your own. It's a really interesting question. Um, gosh, that's like asking someone to choose the, uh, among their children. So, so I, well, I'll, I'll say the one where I spend most of my time um, because I'm I'm really excited what we're building at, at Entangled Studios, uh, which is an ed tech studio. Um, uh, we incubate our own education technology companies. Uh, putting in the first round of capital and effect uh, into companies. We've built some very cool ones like Practice, uh, which is effectively a platform that uh, encourages, allows uh, students to do very deliberate practice of performance-based tasks and then get peer feedback and then professor feedback in a very robust way that uh, amps up the, the number of sessions of deliberate practice students do. Uh, re-up education that re-enrolls dropout students uh, and, and takes a, a percentage of revenue uh, for the life of the re-enrolled student uh, in, in higher education. Uh, very cool companies, both that are doing very well. And then uh, one of our companies is Entangled Solutions, which is a consultancy, innovation services consultancy, where I spent a lot of time working with universities and companies uh, on their higher ed strategies or, or new program creation and the like. And What's very cool about the studio model uh, is twofold. One, having the consultancy allows us to effectively do paid R&D for the startup ideas uh, that we want to incubate. So if, if we think that there's a play, for example, in career services uh, to, to greatly improve and modernize the career, the, the way universities do career services, we can effectively get a consulting project right that allows us to test out that hypothesis with the university and then co-develop the company with them if, if there is indeed a market opportunity there, a way to make meaningful impact and no one else in the space uh, that, that's doing it well. And if we find someone that's doing it really well, we can make a venture investment and we're often able to make very small venture investments that are, that are highly leveraged. The other reason I love the studio model uh, is it doesn't require, in, in education in particular, um, I think there are certain companies that have clear exits uh, strategies, but but they're fewer and farther between than other sectors of the economy, uh, because it's a much longer uh, time horizon over which uh, it, it takes an education company to grow and and and, uh, and and hit the numbers you need to 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 have uh, sort of an IPO exit or, or any number of exits, um, and those time horizons are often longer than. Uh, a 10-year life of, a, say, a, a venture capital fund. And, and this enables us to take money out um, uh, uh, of, of, of sort, uh, sort effectively like a dividend, right? But uh, take it out of the capital um, to fund operations of the overall studio in some neat ways. So it doesn't, it doesn't require us to push every company onto a venture path, which I really like and think it Certain companies are very well made for the venture path in education, and a lot aren't, uh, but are but are providing important services and can be great lifestyle, uh, profitable businesses, even if they're slow growing. Michael, don't think I didn't notice that when I asked you to pick one, uh, you picked uh, a, a way of, of describing several, but that's okay. Uh, you've got a lot of interests. I, I, I understand. Uh, in that studio model, are they all your ideas or you and your partners, or do entrepreneurs come to you with their own ideas and you can slot them in? Yeah, it's a mix is the answer. Um, I, I think it works really well when we incubate uh, and, and have a very cool idea and then go find the entrepreneur to run it. 
But equally so, we have entrepreneurs that come to us that have uh, a great idea or, or want to you know, hang out with solutions for a while doing projects uh, and then uh, sniff around to see if there's a cool idea. And it, it's a great way for an entrepreneur that maybe doesn't want to live on ramen uh, and wants to pull down a salary while they're developing their idea uh, to, to, to hang their teeth, so to speak, and, 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 uh, and get some time to develop something. So, so we see it both ways and it's worked both ways. Where do you see the biggest opportunities over the next five years? And the, the sort of the categories I'm thinking are developed world versus developing world, uh, and then also, uh, you know, is it is it in K twelve? Is it in uh, you know bachelor's degrees? Is it in masters? Is it in uh, ongoing uh, career learning? Uh, you know, if if you, if you're an entrepreneur, if you were advising entrepreneurs to pick one of those paths, would would you direct them in one, in one direction or another? Yeah, so two. two. Uh, one would be the developing world, I'm convinced, will see some of the biggest breakthroughs uh, in, in the next five to 10 years. And I think really exciting models are already um, starting there. Obviously, Bridge International is known, although not yet profitable. Uh, but Andela, very exciting company uh, that I, sh- I should say Entangled has a position in. Uh, but, but very excited about the developing world opportunity. And from a pure disruptive innovation standpoint, uh, you look at no, true non-consumption in education, and the biggest parts of that are, are in, uh, in parts of the developing world where students literally have no access to school in some cases. Um, really excited about an XPRIZE, for example, that is funding uh, folks that are trying to develop apps or, or software solutions that drive what, what they're calling autonomous learning, effectively being able to learn without a teacher around you. Uh, and, and I just think it's tremendous opportunity to drive real disruption there. Uh, the second place I would say, just because I think you really have to right-size those opportunities for those economies, you, you, you can't build a US cost structure in a developing world uh, uh, company. So the other place I, I think that there's tremendous opportunity is in the adult learning space, um, whether it's preparing for middle skills jobs, uh, basic literacy for some adults in the targeting the adults that have uh, some college but no degree and therefore lack a credential to get ahead in the workplace. But anything really that's targeting that education to employment gap, uh, particularly as the half-life of knowledge and skills continues to decrease, I think there's tremendous opportunities to create value there right now. There's a fairly common view in the venture community that there was something of an ed tech bubble in 2011, 12, 13. Uh, I'm curious uh, if you agree with that assessment uh, and where do you think we are today? Um, you know, is there too much money and, and too many startups in this world or the reverse? I do agree with that view. Uh, something I actually wrote about, I think, a few years ago in Forbes when, when it was happening, just feeling that two things were happening. Entrepreneurs were feeling that success was raising the round as opposed to be building a meaningful business. And a lot of money was going into companies uh, that had no prospects for a revenue model or, or were trying a consumer sort of freemium model in, in a K-12 space that just a lot of times doesn't add up. Um, and so you got a lot of one-off tools, but not real companies being built and a lot of money going uh, in that direction. So, so I do agree with that. Has it right-sized? That was the second half of your question, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, I think it did certainly last year a little bit. The numbers are up this year again in in 2017, although it's really driven by a few very big-ticket deals um, that feel very, very big to me for the education space, uh, like investments into EverFi, which 
I think it's a great company. I just, I, you know, I don't know about the investment there. Um, by the same token, I think you're seeing some of the companies that got invested in in 2011, 12, 13, uh, in the higher ed space anyway, companies like Udacity, Coursera, that I think started out very naively and, and without a clear sense of business model, having pivoted to a place that, that makes a heck of a lot more sense. And so some of those investments may come back around to, to look better over time. But um, so, so I think it's right sized, I guess, somewhat, but I, I still worry that there's a, a fair amount of froth in the market. Is, is there a $10 billion or a $50 billion company in online learning? I think there might be a $10 billion, uh, especially if you can imagine one uh, starting really in that true non-consumption space and, and, and being able to tackle the global market in a way we haven't seen. Uh, I'm not convinced that there's a $50 billion uh, uh, market opportunity. And, and I think a lot of people look at spend in education. You'll, you'll hear statements of, uh, you know, the United States spends one point, whatever it is, three trillion or something on K-12 and higher education. And they forget that that's government dollars that is locked up in very clear ways, uh, in very clear categoricals. And it's not just sort of free season that that is the addressable market, right? Um, and so uh, I, I think f for a company to make a run at a, at a $10 billion valuation, you know, China is going to have to clearly be part of it. India is probably going to have to be part of it. And it's going to have to be on a much bigger global scale than just the U.S. You talked earlier about the possibility of software technology providing a personalized tutor uh, for at marginal cost of zero uh, to every student in the world. Do you imagine, could you foresee a company building that uh, and, you know, potentially educating, you know, a billion plus people? Yeah, you know, I've come to a view that it's just going to be infinitely harder for one company to do that. And, and you know, theoretically, if, if a company could figure it out, the network effects would be huge, right? And and it would be a winner-takes-all market. I, I guess from what I've seen in the market, it's, A, the social interactions between students and teachers and other stu students to students and so forth are, are really important and hard to capture in a meaningful way that drives adaptivity and in artificial intelligence. And secondly, the, the challenge of recommending a movie based on other movies you liked on Netflix or a product based on other things you liked on Amazon is both easier and a lot lower stakes than what we're doing in education. And so the, the, the question of the big data you need is just a lot more and you're taking into account a lot more factors. And so I guess my sense over time is you're going to see a lot more specialists that really combine what we know from the research around really good learning design uh, in a very specific area with data to help apply that in a much more refined way rather than using data to make the engine infinitely smarter than any other engine. Um, and not to say we can't learn from the data, but I think what we, the statement I would make is big data is really good for surfacing hypotheses. It's really bad at uh, determining causality. And that's sort of what's holding us back right now in education is an understanding of causality. And, and I don't think big data is gonna crack that puzzle just given how complicated it is. Yeah, in the venture world, uh, there have been a million startups that are sort of Pandora for X. 
And yep. uh, you know, you were starting as you were talking about the the Netflix algorithm that can recommend movies, which is you know okay but not great. Uh, and and I think it turns out potentially that there that Pandora is the only Pandora for X. Uh, and it's just really, really hard. And, and when you think, imagine education or learning, uh, that could be incredibly hard. Different question for you. It's common for entrepreneurs to want to add people with prominence in the field to an advisory board, to their board. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and so I'm sure that you are hit up all the time uh, by startups uh, who want the sort of ha- Michael Horn halo. Um, <laughs> and, and so... Uh, I'm sure a lot startups make lots of mistakes in trying to hit you up. What are the ones that have been successful, or what what le- you know, what lessons would, or tips would you give to entrepreneurs who are trying to hit you up, or or other thought leaders um, to get them involved in their their company? Yeah, it's a great question. I and and clearly it's part of my business model of my life now <laughs> is to play those board and advisory board roles. Um, from my perspective, it, the thing you want to do is get someone excited. Uh, about what you're doing first and foremost and say like for you know someone like me to be like how can I be a part of this right so as opposed to you sort of saying like uh gee and um sort of sort of in a beggar mentality right just getting really capturing the spark of someone like me so that I want to be part of it that's first um and I'll give an example of that. When when Tom Adams, the CEO of Smartly, who, who you of course know as well, and who I interviewed about two weeks ago, so it'll be a nice pairing of this podcast. Perfect. Uh, so I, I'll try not to turn it into too much of a love fest. But the uh, uh, it, at a conference where ed tech companies and, and investors and thought leaders and so forth mingle at ASU GSV uh, a few years back, Tom basically stalked me and said, "Like, just take five minutes with the platform." Um, and I finally did it. And 30 minutes later, I was still learning on the platform and like, holy cow, this is the coolest thing I've seen. And I've been in the space 10 years now. Uh, like, how can I help you? Right. Um, and so it had that effect of it was really sticky. It was engaging. It was active. Uh, and I often get pitches that are, you know, 20 minutes of telling me how the world of education works and so forth. Like, I know how education works help help me see what you're doing right quicker make it active engage and 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 sell me uh so i want to be a part of it and change causality quite frankly second thing uh is have a clear idea of why or how someone like me could help um because i think a lot of you know a lot of times i'm like look i love what you're doing would love to be involved with it but i don't think i can be that useful um uh, or, or I'm not seeing it at the moment. And so have a clear idea, I think, of how someone like me is helpful uh, is, is, is the second piece of advice. And then the last one mistake that I've seen is I think sometimes entrepreneurs are too precious with equity in the early days. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, sort of a free currency that they can use in a highly leveraged ways. And if they try to go way below rate, uh, sort of there, there's a pretty established market rate on what advisors and board members are. Just play with it, right? Um, if you're trying to just short someone on something in the education space, I, you start wondering where are your priorities and are, are you really focused on the right things to, to, to drive a, a, a great company that's going to make a difference and, and be profitable. Michael, thanks so much for spending a little time with me. Yeah, thank you, Dan.